Welcome to Unmuted, the Communities and Cultures podcast, created by the Communities and Cultures Research Hub at Canterbury Christchurch University. This podcast will provide insight into some of the research being conducted at the Hub, combining discussions from academics with comments from the community. The aim of this podcast is to provide a platform for silenced voices to be heard, or unmuted, by engaging directly with communities and sharing details of the research carried out at the Hub in an accessible way. Today, our first episode focuses on the theme of memory. We will explore mourning and memories of war from both personal and social perspectives. Our first segment will look at the How We Mourn project, carried out by Maya Mablin and Miranda Hutton. We will then move on to discuss Ruth San Sabido's work on memories of the Spanish Civil War. So let's start with the How We Mourn project, run by Maya Mablin, an anthropologist from the University of Edinburgh, and Miranda Hutton, a photographer with a background in anthropology from Canterbury Christchurch University. Their original idea is to create a platform for sharing different objects that help people with mourning. With Miranda's expertise in photography, this project involved taking photographs of people's pictures, correspondence, or places that they remember their loved ones by. As an anthropologist and through her research of rituals and death, Maya has been exploring different ways of mourning in both public and private contexts. Maya and Miranda also hosted a How We Mourn workshop at the Canterbury Library in June of 2022, where people could bring photographs and share stories of their loved ones. In this first segment, we will hear from our researchers, some of the workshop participants, and a bereavement specialist, Annie Hogburn, who is also a registered nurse at the Pilgrim's Hospice. But first, our interviewer, Michaela Maslkova, talks to both Miranda and Maya about how and why the research started their findings, and more. Maya, you and Miranda have created the How We Mourn project. Could you tell us what the project is about? So the project is about, uh, as it says, how we mourn today in contemporary secular society. Um, And one of its remits is to sort of look at perhaps the sort of slightly more hidden aspects of, of mourning, um, in spaces like the home. So we're, we're very interested in the material practices that people have, um, the kind of material objects, and particularly the photographs and the role of photographs in navigating grief. It's been sort of developing for about a year. So Maya's based at um, Edinburgh, um, the University of Edinburgh, and she's an anthropologist, and I'm based um, at Canterbury Christchurch University. I'm a photographer and I'm a senior lecturer in photography at Canterbury Christchurch. Both of our research areas prior to this project were very much about um, exploring um, loss and bereavement in different ways. A lot of my um, photography projects have been specific to that area. And so we started off thinking about how we mourn um, quite broadly as the world was beginning to kind of be surrounded by COVID and and lots of death and mourning and restrictions on classic kind of or more traditional mourning kind of patterns. Um, And um, we were looking kind of broadly at the way people mourn through correspondence and jewellery and things like that, as well as photographs. We're also interested in this um, distinction that um, researchers make between grief as a more kind of private experience um, of of loss, um, which is sort of heavily centred on the emotions um, and an emotional terrain, which can be quite unexpected and unpredictable. And I suppose mourning as something a bit more public, a bit more ritualised. 
and I suppose one of the remits of our project is really to to investigate that that distinction really does it still hold um, and and to look at the home as um, a site for the curation of memory if you like mm -hmm. um, through material practices um, and objects um, in terms of the way that they are curated, arranged, displayed, that kind of thing. So we're kind of looking for kind of almost like the public face of mourning. You developed this idea and ran a public event where people brought photographs of loved ones they have lost. What role do photographs play in the grieving process? Photographs have have such kind of complex um, journeys through somebody's life. Uh, this, just doing this research has kind of um, made Myra and I really kind of realise there's so many different kind of relationships we have to, have, have to different photographs. So, for example, there's ones where, you know, there's the photograph that you potentially talk to, and that came up in the workshop. So the photograph is is often used as a mechanism for exchanging conversation. So it's a mechanism for um, an afterlife, you know, so you can continue your relationship with this person because they're there in photographic form. So that's really interesting. And then we've also kind of um, discovered the travel photograph, which is a could be on a phone or it could just be a, you know, a print that's not too precious in a frame and just gets put in a handbag or put in a suitcase and just goes wherever you're going so that you are kind of physically connected. A couple of the people that attended the workshop actually placed photographs in the coffin before the person was buried or cremated. I, I did understand that some, you know, sometimes when people say goodbye, they might kind of put in their favourite cloth or their jewellery or, you know, there's sort of objects, but photographs was a, a really interesting thing. Um, and again, that sort of relationship between the things that you um, exchange in, at that moment of physical departure, you know, and photographs being important to that to kind of mm. con connect or continue a memory. There is so much about the photograph in different ways of people's relationships to mourning and, and afterlife as well. Yeah. Um, one of the discoveries that we were also kind of investigating as part of this research was the mobile phone image or the mobile phone camera and how images can be taken you know everywhere and anywhere and that then when somebody dies you have a you have a larger archive from which to choose particular images that really resonate with you that's the interesting thing about photographs they they not carry us but they record us and our lives and so there are these all of these sort of paths of the people that we once were and became and you know from from a young thing to a you know teenage to a 20 year old they don't necessarily reflect exactly how we kind of were because we weren't we aren't there anymore but they're a version of us for people to remember us by Maya, as an anthropologist, what is your perspective on your research? So as an anthropologist, I've worked a lot on religion and ritual. 
So it was through my interest in wanting to explore ritual in the everyday that I got into thinking about death um, and the way we handle that, right? Because um, even if we're not religious, we we all have to handle death in some way, and and we we do throw we do so through ritual, whether that be you know um, a funeral with all you know the sort of bells and trappings or just a sort of simple. Um, ceremony of remembrance that's happened after a direct cremation say um, humans are unable to deal with death without some form of ritualization so that's my kind of my anthropological perspective but as an anthropologist i am also very interested in um, objects um, and material culture and um and so we, we we bring together together we were we were very interested in this idea initially of, of the photograph the role of the photograph in mourning um and and in this idea that the photograph of the deceased person has its own social life right that we can think about photographs as objects which sort of not only do they can they're not are, are they only mnemonics i.e reminders of the person who's gone um they're not just triggers for memory they become almost like you could say persons in their own right um that go on to have a kind of afterlife or a life of their own um in the way that they are managed socially but circulated um exchanged um curated cropped edited um such a rich life pertains to the photograph in general but even more so after a person dies, the, the work that we do around photographs becomes even more pressing, even more poignant and important to us. What impact do you think your project has had on the people who participated or who has come across your work? The workshop we did um, recently in Canterbury was a completely unexpected success in that sense you know we, we we didn't expect it to go badly but we didn't expect it to sort of go quite as well as it did in terms of when i say well i wouldn't say people sort of left laughing and smiling it wasn't that you know we made anything better but people seem to have really really appreciated having that space um in, in which to talk and um this wasn't just the one-on-one -on -one encounter which we've had before and th those can be very tense this is sort of more like a support group format in which people um, with similar experiences of loss are, are brought together and are, are given the time and space to share their experiences the day itself was very intense and and quite draining but um it was also incredibly positive and so much so that we you know we've just been overwhelmed with the emails we've had in response you know people have gone out of their way to um, email us thank us for running um this ask have asked us whether we will be running more um we've been able to kind of uh, put people in touch with other people who uh, and to sort of create little mini communities out of this I think um, it's had a very positive impact on the way people um, have responded to the How We Mourn project. So the in the beginning, we started off with a sort of case study methodology. Maya would go to um, households and then I and, and conduct a kind of more in-depth ethnographic, you know, anthropological um, interview. And then I would follow up by visiting the home and taking photographs of interiors and noticing 
uh, and taking photographs of the differences in the way people display images, perhaps in the front room compared to their bedroom, certain images that people have a different relationship to. Um, so that was our first methodology. And so we would spend quite a long time with people um, and everyone that we did that with said um, how grateful they were to be included in the project. I think there was always a bit of hesitancy first about, you know, what are we, what are you doing exactly? Mm. Why are you coming to my home and taking photographs? But I think once they realized what the project was about, they were really on board and they really kind of valued remembering their loved ones, rethinking through their loved ones, talking through getting upset, getting laughing again at their quirks. And um, and so I think, you know, they they really appreciated the sort of empathy um, that we kind of gave them and the time to just talk again about their experience of their love and their loss. I think they had a day where they could just offload and share and get upset, but then laugh again. And, you know, I think they... They had a day where they they kind of perhaps felt like that was all okay and that was fine and that's part of what the process is. And just, I think, you know, with bereavement, one of the kind of worst things is to forget, you know, to not remember people and to have any event or any conversation in which you are remembering um, is a bonus because what you don't want to do when you lose someone you really love is for people just not to talk about them anymore and like they their lives never lived you know like they didn't exist and that's one of the kind of key things that is makes people sad I think that it's like we have to sort of forget them move on not you know um not mention our pain when actually you're going to be with your pain for the rest of your life. So my name is Annie Hogben. I'm a registered nurse and I've been here at Pilgrims about 36 years now. My current role is developing volunteers alongside clinical services. So part of that um, is things like our bereavement project, our ward projects, um, some of our memory work. A big part of our work is looking at bereavement support. It's how we um, kind of can look after people because we provide bereavement support for anyone in East Kent. We felt it might be useful to have that little connection there so that if people found themselves in a space where they were reliving memories, they were talking about things that are sometimes painful. Maybe that might trigger that a little bit of bereavement support might be helpful. So we talked a little bit before about kind of how we would do that, how that should work, what resources could be available, how we could signpost people if they did need any support at the event. The hours that I was there, there was such a, a really nice group of people of all ages, there was a little girl there who'd come um, along with her dad. There were some older people who'd come along with a whole host of photographs. There were ladies and gentlemen. There were friends. There were partners. There were grandchildren. There, there was such a raft of people. And it was a lovely tapestry almost of all of these kind of people coming with their stories, with their photographs, with their memories with their loss, with their sadness. It was also really nice to hear funny stories as well because laughter, so therapeutic and people were telling funny stories about the people they'd loved that had died. When I was sitting there listening, the thing I think that was for me the most powerful was I didn't know the people who died, 
But yet when I left, I felt I did. I felt I'd got a glimpse of those people. I'd shared just a tiny little bit of their life. And I'd seen all the love and all these feelings these people had for these people. And it was really powerful and really um, so uplifting. I found it quite amazing. And um, to hear other people talk and show their photos, and it makes you think, oh, I did that. Or, you know, because sometimes you feel that you do these things and are you the only one who's ever done anything? But you know, but when you hear other people talk, it makes you realise that, you know, we we can do, there really there's no rules or law, is there, in grieving, you can grieve and do, it's like I actually still got my son's pillar, and a lady was saying that she'd not washed the pillowcase since her husband died last year, well I'm thinking, I've still, I have washed pillowcases, but I've actually still got his pillar from 21 years, and that is... There's no way I could... But you think, wow, this is what people do, because so, there's no rules, and when it comes to loss and grieving, and so I've learnt that today. I, feel, I, think it's, I think it's wonderful that this is happening and you're carrying on helping people. Yeah. It's a lot better out than in, um, and again, like, talking about them means they're still here and they haven't been forgotten. And if you can share them with more people, then they will touch more people's lives as well. Um, but also there's no wrong way to grieve and there's no wrong time to talk about it. Like, just don't bottle it up and don't hold it in because that eats away and it's not, it's not good for anyone. Today I found that it's really helped me to know that there's lots of people that are, are suffering with loss and um, just to be amongst people that understand has been quite remarkable and I think it's a really lovely idea to be able to come along, meet other people, and show your photos and just enjoy um, being with other people that understand. Obviously, thinking about Miranda and Maya's work, photographs are a very important thing for people. Um, it's something that creates the image. It brings the person back to the forefront of someone's mind. It helps create positive memories of a, a passion and a place they've shared with them. But I think also sharing stories and experiences and memories is another really powerful way that we have of remembering people. I think in the UK, grief um, and death, we kind of shy away from. So it's nice to kind of actually have space where it's okay to talk about it and, and it's okay to cry about it, it's okay to laugh about it, it's okay to feel whatever it is that you're feeling because we need to start, I don't know, getting used to the fact that death is a part of life instead of hiding away from it like we seem to do a lot. Yeah. People have got their own stories yeah. and um, mostly with the picture that you brought with you has a strong reason for bringing that picture. Yeah, yeah. Like I brought a picture of my son and it was his sports day and uh, he had met, he had medals. Um, he got a medal around his neck, hadn't he? Mm. And he had this big smile on his face as if to say, you know, I, 
I've just won the race or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I remember the day of going to see him doing that. And that that made me happy because that was that was a happy a happy photo of, of times when he he was well and he he actually uh, enjoyed taking part in that race. It can conjure up almost as if the moment were there again and we were in it. Um, sometimes we even experience the smells, the sounds, all the things that would have happened at that time. So I think memories and stories and the ability to better share them really is important. Photographs can really bring back that memory of that person. It helps us know what made them special, what made them unique. Um, and it's a really important way of keeping that person that has gone in somebody's life, whether that's because people have got the photographs out on view, whether they because they look through their photograph albums regularly with their family. It's a continuing bond, really. It's a way of making sure that person who's died is still in, in everybody's lives. However you see that photograph, you've captured not just the person's face, but you've captured their personality, the things they loved in life, the things they were passionate about, and the reason, of course, that they're so special and unique to the people who love them. Um, I think it's also a really important way, photographs, of reminiscing, and it's quite therapeutic. Being able to share photographs, to talk about them with family, with friends, in a group, wherever, is a really therapeutic healing way of being able to share the stories, talk about them, but keep them alive. It's kind of a recognition of that person, isn't it? So I think photographs incredibly powerful. For me, there's something about if you talk about someone, they haven't gone. Like the more that you talk about someone, and the more you remember someone, and the more you pass that memory on to other people, they're still here. And um, so it's important for me to kind of make sure that people live on doing that. When you share yeah. photos of fun and you go, oh, it, you know, we did have some good time. Yeah, we did. You know, and it's nice to remember those times as well as, I mean, you're not going to forget about the, you know, the day that Stephen died. But I think, you know, trying to remember some of the things that he did do and did make me laugh. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's important to remember those times. Yeah. And it's really been such a nice atmosphere, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's been it has, yeah, it's, it's really been good. Has. I recommend yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Tell everyone about it, won't yeah. we? We will. I think when we're looking at grief and loss. Sometimes people's memories to start with focus on how somebody died. Um, they're very strong images, whether that's because you've been alongside someone you love who's dying, or whether that's been because you've, they've been unwell or because it's been a sudden loss. As time goes on, people's memories start to shift to images before. Um, so they'll, they'll shift to times and places that have been very important, very happy, very joyful. They'll think of occasions, holidays, um, when they perhaps first met, how they spent time together, things people love to do. And I think that then creates a lot of joyful, uplifting memories. Often people will still have both. They will still never lose those memories of how somebody died. 
but I think they become blended with a lot of other memories that are incredibly joyful, uplifting, that will bring them laughter um, and other emotions, as well as that acute sadness that they often have. I have my grandmother's ashes uh, and a photo of her and my granddad on their wedding day. Um, and I just, I go through and talk to them. Um, I've got tattoos that are symbolic of people that I love who I've lost. Um, because that way I carry them with me. And sometimes memories can fade or change or you kind of remember things differently. Whereas with photos, you, you can look at it and you can be in that moment and you see them as you want to remember them. Like they're real in that moment and they're still here in that moment. So, and sometimes you don't need words. Sometimes just seeing someone is all that, that you need. So I, th I think genuinely memories do shift and photographs help us do that as well. And some of the theories we like to talk about are how Tonkin is a really nice one because it just describes how we never really lose the person we love. They stay with us. Our grief stays with us to a degree, but we have space and we learn to live around it. And I think that's how memories change as well because we find a way of containing those memories that are important but creating new ones as well. We've just heard some interesting insights on personal grief but mourning doesn't only happen on a personal level it can also occur nationally or within small communities. In the same way dealing with loss is not only a personal matter but can also become political and perhaps be caused by a conflict or even a war. Ruth Sansabido's research centred around memories of the Spanish Civil War in 1936, with testimonies from both survivors of the event and their relatives. Since the conflict has been widely discussed over the years because of its historical significance, we wanted to see how looking back on this piece of history has felt and how the memories of it have changed. Ruth speaks about this in our next segment including how the individual facet of grief has been affected by such a heavily politicised dispute. We also hear a few testimonies from families affected by this conflict. These testimonies were collected as part of Ruth's project Herencias del Treinta y Seis, or Legacies of 1936, which were included in the documentary. If you'd like to find out more, you can watch the full documentary and see an online archive of testimonies at www.herencias1936.com. The link is in the podcast description. So many stories are still hidden. In Spain, there are still more than 144,000 disappeared victims of Franco's repression, second only to Cambodia, according to the United Nations. When Franco died in 1975, a pact of silence was agreed by politicians during the transition to democracy. The 1977 amnesty law, which is still in force today, tried to get everyone to forgive and forget, as if both sides of the conflict had committed the same types of aberrations, equally and on the same level. But they were not all the same. In 1936, Franco led a fascist military coup against a democratically elected government. The coup developed into a war because it was met with resistance from those who would not accept a fascist regime. It became a struggle between fascism and anti-fascism, and that's why the Spanish Civil War has been described many times as a rehearsal stage 
for what was to come in 1939, the Second World War. In Spain, in practice, the Pact of Silence agreed in the 1970s means that these victims are still virtually ignored by the Spanish state and there is no official support for processes of repair and reparation. We are not talking about people who died fighting in the war. We are talking about those who were taken away from their homes, those who were imprisoned for not agreeing with the regime that Franco wanted to impose, those who were executed extrajudicially and dumped into mass graves. This is an inheritance. One inherits furniture or whatever might be inherited. But in our case, we inherited a corpse. So this is our family's corpse. It is an inheritance, well loved and cherished, but it is an inheritance. We are talking about their children, their relatives, who fought for years to find the remains of their parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters. Many of these children have now passed away, but thousands of families and the country are yet to find a resolution. Perpetrators of extrajudicial killings, torture, expropriations, forced labor, and the theft of babies walked free to live side by side with their victims who remained silent and in fear for decades. Well, I'll tell you the extent of the injustice in this village. When my brother was 10, they tied him and the other children up to a tree, and then they pretended to play Russian roulette, pointing a gun at them. To break this silence, my project developed a framework to recover the subjugated local memories of the conflict, as remembered by those who experienced it. Comparing these suppressed narratives to dominant discourses about the Spanish Civil War, I was able to offer a counter-mechanism to the perpetual erasure of, me of the memory of the defeated by articulating the experiences of people who would otherwise remain inarticulate. I originally conducted this work in one small rural Spanish community, which is called Arroyo Molinos de León in Andalucía, Beginning in 2013, over a three-year period, I interviewed 22 participants multiple times during eight fieldwork trips. I also gained access to a local archive to examine thousands of historical files documenting over 40 years of local practices and culture. The analysis unearthed uh, previously marginalized voices and events that took place in this community in the 1930s and early 1940s. You know, without holding grudges, without hating anyone for what they did, he has told us so that we know the truth, so that we know what happened, because everyone should see it. If you don't have first-hand experience, a direct connection to it, you don't know what this is about. I have studied Spanish history at school, at high school, and I have never, ever been told about this. I don't know if this is because it is the last session and they didn't have time to get through it, or simply because it is not in their interest to cover it. It became clear that the expression of memory is an important site of socio-political struggle. 
I found that the lived experiences in this community did not correspond with those promoted by the official Civil War discourse. This highlighted the importance of the local context. A key finding was that, in fact, uh, there was no war in this village, only fascist repression. The local context was also shown to be pivotal in the levels of these repressive practices, which varied between communities. So, for example, while thousands of women were killed across the country, in this community, the eight women who had been sentenced to death were eventually pardoned. Nevertheless, local women were subjected to other forms of repressive practices that remained silenced for decades. I also found that while the anti-fascist side did not kill anyone in this village, the fascists executed more than 40 men, 18 of whom are still buried in a mass grave in a neighboring village. One of the greatest outcomes of this project was that works started to take place to find the exact location of this grave so that it can eventually be exhumed. We recover the honor of everyone who was humiliated, of everyone they wanted to bury in road ditches so that we would never remember them. Precisely for that reason, because we don't forget and we don't forgive, we are here to remember them. When years go by, not only us, but also their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, they will always have, from now on, a place to come and remember them and to leave a flower for them. Following this project, I developed a more in-depth understanding of the multiplicity of local experiences by extending my approach to localities across Spain, revealing a wider range of hidden narratives and silenced voices. This resulted in the development of an online archive and documentary film, both known as Herencias del 36, uh, which means Legacies of 1936. To develop the documentary, 60 interviews were conducted with victims, victims' relatives and volunteers in A Coruña, Afonsagrada, Ponferrada, Astorga, Valderas, Salamanca, Madrid, Barcelona and Seville. Collectively, the publications, archive and film include contributions from nearly 70 Spanish villages, towns and cities. These outputs demonstrate that the Spanish Civil War was not a monolithic event characterized by a simplistic civil war narrative and provide a counter-mechanism to resist the imposition of the victor's history. Since the Spanish Civil War project, Ruth's research on local memories has expanded to explore memories of other events. Here are some comments from the residents of Deal in Kent remembering living through the Second World War. My name's Eric. I was born in 1931, Castleford, Yorkshire, and uh, moved down here like everybody else, all come to work down the mines. Not me, I wasn't one old enough. <laughs> but uh, about 1937, something like that. But then the war started. Uh, I went back to Castleford for a couple of years, then we came back here and watched the old doodle box and the shelling and the... Going to school uh, was hopeless, because if you were getting ready to go to school, you didn't go if the air raid one you went. 
And uh, so we used to think, oh, that's lovely. <laughs> but I don't know, because yeah. uh, you didn't learn enough, really. And if you was in herb school and the warning went, then you was all in the shelters, so you didn't do anything, you know, only run about. And, uh, and then uh, I left school in 1945 and I got a job straight away as an Arab boy. And uh, I think it was 15 shillings a week. Wow. <laughs> I was in the uh, army there and uh, I went down to a place called Blandford Forum down in Dorset Way and then we went back to our camp at Mount Sosi and they had a notice board up there, all volunteers to go to the Far East, all different places, and I thought, I don't know, I'll fancy Cyprus. So I said, Cyprus. I didn't tell her I volunteered, because it was all an active service. We had Macarius and Grievous, and they're all fighting, you know. Anyway, I went out to Cyprus, all time. Fancy putting you out there, what a shame, you know. Oh. Terrible. I wouldn't dare tell her. I wouldn't dare tell her, no. She worried to death about it anyway. It was time for me, because, you know, us lads, you didn't have much choice, you know. They said to you, oh right, you're 18, you've got to go in the army. So we had to go in the army, called us up. So we all done two years in the army, come back home. And of course, it disrupts all your life, really, you know, because you have good friends and good mates, like, but they go in, if they're a little bit older than you, they go in, and of course they do their two years. When they come out, they start courting, and it's girlfriends and that. So they say, oh, I might come out. All the friends that I knew, and was really mates, they were all courting and got married and went here and there. We had a fair bit of it, didn't deal, did we? Mm. My dad was a, a postwoman during the war, a very early memory. She took me on the back of her bike, which she wasn't supposed to do, on the, on the carrier. I'd be pedalling down the road and bing, 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 and they're dropping all around down the road. Yeah. I mean, me and my, my cousin, we got shot at in, we was in Mundrum, and the planes, they, uh, I think it was a Saturday, they came over and there was machine gunning anything. Canterbury and yeah. what have yeah. And uh, me and my cousin, we'd been uh, picking uh, chestnuts at Wally Chopin. And we got got to uh, Little Mondium at the top, you know, and this brain gun carrier. <laughs> and they were saying, get down, get down. Oh, God, never been to find it all in life. We were sat there and, and looking up. And the planes were on. It was only about 100 feet. Just beat the strip. Yeah, yeah. you could see the big swastikas, you know, and they, they were firing at anything, you know. Mm. And, uh, and then when we got down to the bottom, into Monjum, uh, we could hear the plane. So we, we jumped off the bikes and we went to run in this house. It was uh, Solly's, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Solly's. It's a big house. Yep. And we went, but the doors were locked, so we was at the side, side of the house, in the edge, you know, like this, and the bloody bullets were going, choing, choing, all over the top. Oh, 
God. <laughs> you know, Martin, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then we got into Davis Avenue and we, we went in somebody's house. There was nobody there, they was all in the shelter. Yeah. And we was in their house. And there was, oh dear. So the Canadians were stationed out on Willow Woods. Mm -hmm. If now, even now, you can just see the faint trench there. Oh, and there were a couple of nasty ones. I mean, the shelter in Robert Street, that, that was taken out with however many people were in there at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. My, my dad, he was a warden. A.R.P. warden. Yeah. Put that light out, yeah. like, you know. <laughs> well, uh, but there still were down the mines, yeah. which was a dangerous job. You only had a, a, a bomb to drop. Well, they'd never get out. But, I mean, they all liked a few beers, you know. And uh, the warning went, I always remember it, he said to my mum, he says, Lena, can you come with me and blow me whistle? <laughs> <laughs> they built a plane in France, I'm sure it was France, one of the biggest passengers who could take 500 odd people they tested it out on Manston Airstrip yeah. and it was successful. They took off and they landed. And they said it was, it was great. That was always kept open because during the war that's where all the big... Well, the big for, uh, um, 47... Yeah, big yeah. All the Americans used to come in there 47. and use that. Yeah, I mean they used to be... Well, that's why they wanted a long runway, because yeah. all them blooming bombs they had on it, you know, it could go in forever and ever, and then they used to take off very gentle, and then... And they called out the flying fortress. Yeah. Some of them were until, until a few years ago, you could still see one, Sandwich Bay, Pegwell Bay Way. Yeah. And the tide went right, you could still see the bits of it sticking up. Mm -hmm. Well, it didn't quite make it. Well, I was born in the, in the early 50s, so yeah. I'm, 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 I'm just about, I'm just approaching 70 now. But things, things that were left over from the war were still, still there. I was, I was playing ration cards and things like that, and, you know, go, going around all the, all the bombed out buildings and things like that, and, you know, exploring and that sort of thing. All this Dig for Britain thing that, that, that was going on, and... We had allotments, everybody had allotments and all that sort of thing. That, that was all left over from, from the war time when, when yeah. they were digging for victory and all this sort of thing, you know. Grow your own veg and help the country out by, by not, you know, not doing this and not doing that. Grow your own veg, make your own things. I don't know where over the back there, there was a pig farm as well, towards Ringwald Way. I remember my granddad saying that they, they slaughtered a pig uh, at the end of the war. To, for, to, for the celebrations, for the, like, the, the, the VJ and the VE Day celebrations at the end of the war, they slaughtered one of the pigs and, and the locals all, all participated in the feast. See, you know? the, if you had pigs or animals, you couldn't, you know, say I, I had a, a couple of pigs and say, you're going to cut one up for Christmas. Mm. You couldn't do that. No, everything was yeah. rationed. Oh. You had to have a, a license or yeah. something.
yeah. you know, and it all you all had to be cut up properly. And, mm. Two you know, ounces of that and two ounces of that. But in the middle of the night, nobody was about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was exciting. <laughs> well, I should say, yeah. For yeah. young kids, yeah, it was, yeah. Know, it was an experience. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the first ever episode of Unmuted, the Communities and Cultures podcast. In future episodes, we plan to cover more insights from our research into communities and cultures. And we also want to hear from you, our listeners, so that your comments and suggestions can shape the direction of this podcast. So let us know in the comments or on social media what you would like to see on this podcast. You can find us across social media at UnmutedCCCU. In the second episode, we will continue to delve deeper into the topic of memory and nostalgia, and we hope that you will join us once again. This episode is based on research by Maya Mablin, a senior lecturer in social anthropology at the University of Edinburgh, Miranda Hutton, a senior lecturer in photography at Canterbury Christ Church University, and Ruth San Sabido, a reader in media and social inequality, also at Canterbury Christchurch University.